We are in a series on Elijah. It's our second week on that series. And last week, Jonathan kicked things off. And I'm just going to take things from there, really. So if you've got a Bible, if you could turn to 1 Kings chapter 17, uh, uh, we're going to read from verses 17 to 24. We can pick up the story there. Now, while you're flicking away in your Bibles, um, or not, or waiting for the words to appear on the screen, um, I think it's good to give some context to this. What's where we're up to, what happened last week, if, whether you're here or not, I imagine you need a memory jog. So uh, basically, what happened uh, last week, what we saw with Jonathan, was that Israel had turned thoroughly away from God. Israel, the people of God, they turned away from God. And Elijah, uh, this prophet, is going to play this important part in turning them back. That's the kind of context of the whole series, I guess. And his first move is to go to the king, King Ahab, and announce to him, that basically uh, there's going to be no rain, there's going to be a drought until he next says so. Now, if you're going to say something like that, I guess, then it's probably good to have an escape route up your sleeve, because I'm sure Ahab would be thinking, I can find ways to make you say so, uh, Elijah. So God then sends Elijah into hiding, and uh, Jonathan looked at that all uh, last week. God says to him to go into the desert, and uh, tells him rather encouragingly, the ravens that we saw there, we're not going to pick out his eyes, but we're going to feed him. Okay, They were going to give him food. And so Elijah, uh, he goes, he obeys, and that's what happens. Amazing step of faith. Uh, then God says, we'll now go to this little town. Go a little bit out of Israel. Go to a place called Zarephath. Go there. And this time, uh, a widow is going to feed you. A widow who doesn't even have enough food for herself and her son. She's going to feed you for the rest of the drought. And uh, again, Elijah would have been like, well, okay, God, he obeyed and God came through in that way. And uh, we pick up the story then in verse 17. And here it is. It says, sometimes later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? So God's miraculously provided through this woman for Elijah, okay? And he's been, there's been lots of Difficult steps of faith along the way, but everything really has been going kind of according to plan in a sense. He's obeyed, God's been faithful, and then totally out of the blue, this happens. It's not in line with the plan. It has nothing to do with the whole thing about Ahab and the drought or anything. No, it's just life happens, or the opposite in this case. Uh, tragedy strikes, and the widow's son dies. And from the very start of this passage, we're going to we stop there. We're going to read a little bit more in a minute. If we were just to stop there, we would assume that what the writer is doing here is using this tragedy to throw up the age-old question that I'm sure all of us have asked at one time or another, particularly in a situation like this, is, wait a minute, why? Why suffering? Or more particularly, where is God in our suffering? We see it here in two different places just to emphasize. You've got the widow. She asks it in quite a pointed way to Elijah, kind of accusing him. Did you come to kill my son? And I think we can see roughly what she means there. It's implied in what she's saying. Well, actually, has God done this? She makes it specific. She gives a possible reason. Has, has God done this to me to punish me for my sin? And again, when tragedy strikes, we often can think that, and many people would have thought that. Is this a direct punishment on me? And then Elijah, just in case we miss that, he repeats the question almost exactly the same. Lord my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow? Was it you who did this, God, by causing her son to die? Now, this is 
a question, as I mentioned, that has been around for generations. Probably ever since humans started thinking about anything, they've thought about this question. And it could be as a philosophical puzzle that people uh, think about while writing books and stroking their chins or scratching their heads or whatever they do when they're thinking. It's kind of how can a loving God allow such suffering in the world, okay? But it could be actually, and more often and intensely, this is a very practical question in the face of suffering itself. Why did God allow this thing to happen? That's what the widow's asking. She's not talking about it philosophically. She's talking about it practically. This thing that's happened to me, this tragedy, what part did God have in it? And it's a question for believers and it's a question for skeptics. And it's a very difficult question. And I imagine there'd be some now who'd be thinking, ah, great, let's get ready for, uh, get our brains ready for a bit of a mental workout. We're going to go into the problem of suffering. We're going to explore the philosophical ramifications. Some of you might know me a little bit and think, yep, that's what we're getting ready for. Some might be looking forward to that. Some might be dreading that a little bit. So let's see what answer then to the problem of suffering does this passage give. Let's go to verse 21. Let's continue. Then Elijah stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and the word of the Lord from your mouth is true. So what answer is given? absolutely none not an answer at all he raises the question it's not us I don't think I've generated this this is he didn't just do it once he did it twice in the passage the writer of this passage and then just leaves it okay why has God allowed this suffering well I'm not going to tell you actually we're going to talk about what happened it's funny because actually while that is true there is no answer given in the traditional sense of the word there is an answer in this passage to this problem It's a bit like the widow goes to Elijah and asks the question, why did God allow my son to die? And Elijah thought, hmm, good question. Not sure about that one. So he goes to God and says, God, why did you allow the widow's son to die? And God responds by saying, well, I'm not going to give you an answer to that question, Elijah. I'm going to send you as the answer to that question, Elijah. Elijah, in a sense, is the answer here. I've got to be clear on this. I'm, what I'm not saying here, and I don't think what this passage is saying, is that thinking through the big questions is not important. Actually, far from it. It's very important. The whole books of the Bible are given over just to thinking through the problem of suffering. Why is there so much suffering in the world? The book of Job. If you feel cheated today because we don't do that kind of stuff, go to Job. Have fun with Job. Okay? It's, it's pretty hard going, but it addresses this question from most conceivable angles, really. No, it's important to think things through. However, we've got to remember in the Christian life that it is action that is of the utmost importance. It's important as Christians that we can articulate well arguments for God's existence. About a week or so back, we did this. We had an event in City Centre, Can You Be Good Without God? Looking at the moral argument for God's existence. But you know what? While that's important, of utmost importance, it's not we can explain that well, but that we live our lives showing how our relationship with that God actually makes us better people. That's very important. The problem of suffering, I think, is the best example of this. God doesn't want his people just to think this one through. We do should think this one through, but he doesn't want us just to think it through and be able to give good answers to those who ask. No, he's more concerned that we meet that suffering when we come across it. 
We meet the need as we find it. We provide ourselves as an answer to that problem. Because actually, none of us at the end of our lives are going to be judged on the clarity of our thinking. I don't know if you realize that. That's not going to be what happens when we stand before the judgment seat of God. No, we're judged on our actions in those days. Yes, covered by the blood of Jesus, but it's very clear. We're judged for what we do, what we said, how we've acted. So what's the answer to the suffering that people experience? Well, I think this passage is pointing us to something important. In a very real way, one of the main answers should be the church of Jesus, the people of God who practically go out to meet the need of others like Elijah does in this story. So let's see then, in that case, what does he do in the story? What does he do that we could emulate in this way collectively today? Now, obviously, it goes without saying that part of his, the solution's problem comes from Elijah's incredible uh, miraculous power that God has given him. Ability to be able to perform miracles, the likes of which, I mean, we've seen some pretty astonishing ones so far, between Elijah and Elisha, they clock up some pretty impressive miracles, and you'll see that as we go on with the series, okay? And you know what? It would be absolutely right and fair uh, for this talk to go at this angle and say, right, therefore, we need to press into God for the miraculous, to step out in that stuff. Just want to make this really clear just in case as we go along from here you think my silence on this matters uh, means something it doesn't we as a church believe that miracles happen today don't we kind of yeah we, I think we I think we're on that page most of us we believe God does miracles as he did in the time of Elijah as he did in the time of Jesus as he did in the acts of the apostles and that we should chase after those things we should seek God for more of that in our day and age don't we we believe that Good, I'm glad. We're on the same page. But, and that could be the talk. But I want to look a bit behind that, actually. I, I feel drawn to focus on something else that's definitely here that also almost lies behind the miracle that's done here. Why did, the question is, why did Elijah do this? As we look on, actually, in this talk, you'll see it's quite unexpected. He would have had a good argument not to intervene in this situation. Well, why does he do it? Well, when we see Elijah uh, healing this woman's boy, we don't see at all a professional miracle worker just doing his thing, going, ah, oh, hand it over to me, you know, I'll, I can do this. No, you don't see that at all. We see someone who cares deeply for this woman and her son. There's two things here we can see uh, in, this, in this part of the passage. Firstly, look at how he prays. It's not a kind of, Lord, act now, go, or Father, just let you, we'd like, I'd like to heal uh, this lady, but let your will be done. It's nothing like that. No, he cries out to God, it says. Again, it doesn't say it once, it says it twice. He cries out to God. There is a, a, a deep empathizing with this woman. He takes on her pain. This clearly matters to him. This is important to him. And look at what he does as well. It's a very strange thing. But he goes in and he stretches, says he stretches himself out on the boy three times. Now, a different commentators on this passage say different things about what this actually meant there's no real precedent for it (coughs) that we can say oh yeah that's what they did that's what miracle workers did to raise boys from the dead no that's that's not the case what does it mean well it could mean all sorts of things i think it's a sign of his desperation he does it once twice three times he really wants this he there's a deep concern here i think pictorially for us as well there's something in his action that that can speak to us metaphorically as well. He, what does he do? He stretches himself for this. We often talk about things stretching us, don't we? Like, that was a real stretch to do that. What do we mean when we say that? I think what we mean is 
it cost us to do that. I had to move outside of what I'm comfortable with. That involved sacrifice. I think we see that implied here as well. And in the end, through this, God works this mighty miracle. But it only would have happened because Elijah felt compassion for this woman and her son, and he acted on the basis of that compassion. I wonder if that sounds familiar to anyone. I don't know if it's too early to do this, but in a book called Luke... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Whoa, okay, just preaching that for three years. We're going back there. Yeah, we're back there. Too soon, maybe. Uh, in Luke chapter 7, for example, Jesus has all a very similar uh, experience to this. Okay? He sees a, a widow coming out the, with the funeral. The funeral's been done, the, and her son's on the funeral uh, kind of carrier. I don't know what it would be, in, but he's dead there. And Jesus sees him and heals him. And it says this in Luke 7.13 about his motivation. See, it's exactly the same as in the Elijah passage. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. Time after time again, as you look through the Gospels, Jesus, miracle after miracle, and you think, oh, that's amazing, I want to do miracles. But you've got to look back. Why did he do it? So much of the time, it's he had compassion on them. He had compassion on her. He had compassion on him. His heart went out to her. Elijah is exactly the same. He's not going through the motions in this passage. He sees a need, he feels compassion, and he acts. This isn't just a feeling. This is a feeling accompanied by action. Elijah is the solution to the widow's problem. Firstly, actually, by responding in compassion to her need. And I feel that's what God would like to bring to our attention today. The kindness, the kind of kindness that sees need and responds to it uh, with action. There's a few more things to say of that. I'm sure you'd be aware of that, spotting the clock. <laughs> but I guess you could say, well, okay then, there must be something more to that because that's a pretty simple message. Are you, you're just saying, be kind to people. Is that the message of today's talk? Help people who are in need. Is it love your neighbor? Is that where we're going? And I think some of us, we could think, we know that stuff. That's very simple. That's, you, you learn about it in school assemblies. I'm sure AD's done a hundred assemblies. Being kind to people, you know, like... And, it's, it's, nat- it's kind of natural. We, 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 we would think like this. We would think, this is just a natural thing, being kind. <laughs> Stop talking. I can, I can use you as an example. You can't interrupt my sermon. <laughs> I won't be kind to you. Anyway. Uh, pro- oh, okay, thanks. Thanks for that stats. Very useful. Um, <laughs> so you completely thrown me. Yes, so b- people think this is kind of just natural thing. Yeah, be kind to you. We're all kind to people. You ask anybody and uh, say, look, uh, if you, well, let's put it the other way around. If you said to someone, you're not a kind person, they'd say, whoa, wait a minute. That's a bit harsh. Everyone's a kind person from their opinion. And to a degree, they're right. In that everyone's done kind things at some point in their life. I'm sure of that. Everyone from Mother Teresa to Adolf Hitler would be in that category. Okay? Would have done kind things at some time. But, but you can see, that's a reasonably large scale, isn't it? I mean, we wouldn't want to be on one end of that scale, I would imagine. I don't need to flesh out which end that is. Actually, when we look at the example of Elijah, we see a definition given to kindness that very much makes the point, actually, the kind of kindness that is expected by God from his people is not natural. It's not something you say, oh yeah, but everyone does that, don't they? No, actually, when we look at it, and I think this will become quite clear quite quickly, it's the opposite. It looks impossible what God's asking us to do as we go. I just want you to be aware of that as I go, because I've felt that in preparing this. There's a, there's a massive challenge to us. We think about the simplest of things. Be kind to people in need. Oh, yeah, like that. Well, in 10 minutes, I wonder if you'll be feeling quite as comfortable. 
Let's see, let's see what I mean. Elijah demonstrates uh, this kindness in two ways, and they're both incredibly challenging. Okay? First is this. His kindness is to someone who is very, very different to him. His kindness to someone who's very, very different to him. This woman is not in Elijah's gang. Okay? You could say that, I think. She's not in his family. She's not in his natural friendship group. Yes, they've been thrown together by circumstances, but actually there's a very significant barrier between these two people, which would be their ethnicity. Zarephath is outside of Israel. This woman is not an Israelite. And that might sound odd to us today, but in those days it was absolutely massive. Because an Israelite like Elijah... Uh, would have split the world. When they look at the population of the planet, they wouldn't have thought of all the different cultures and nationalities so much. They would have split it into two different groups of people. There was the Israelites and those who aren't Israelites. That's basically it. The Jews and the Gentiles. Okay, It's us and it's them. That would have been very, very stark. Elijah was an Israelite. The widow was a non-Israelite. So therefore, to Elijah, even though he was probably living in this woman's house, and they were kind of, she, God was using her to feed him in many ways. She was the other. She was the other who was unlike him. She was the other who he didn't understand. She was the other who was somebody else's problem. The other who he was genuinely not obliged to go out of his way for. Now you might think, well, that's incredibly callous. How could they have thought like that? Thank goodness it's the New Testament of the Bible. But actually, we brush this over far too quickly because we do exactly the same in our lives. I think we all split up the world in a very similar way, although we would draw the line slightly differently. It's very common for people to talk about the brotherhood of human beings and uh, how we have a responsibility to one another. But in practice, actually, we also operate with an us and with a them. We have a close group. would be our family and our friends, maybe even people in the church. And then we'd have another group that is them, that's out there, okay? Now, we'll often be kind and compassionate, obviously, to the first group. That goes without saying. And in our culture, that would be understood. Obviously, you're kind, and you would go out of your way for people who are with us. But for them, no, 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 that's not quite so easy. We've got to understand this. As Christians, obviously, we're called to be kind to those in our family and friends, But there's a calling to us to go out of our way, to be kind for those outside of that group as well. Well, to kind of say, well, with that group, just make sure you don't hurt any of them. That's the basic thing. Just let them go about their own business. Someone else's problem. That's not the message of the Bible. That's not the calling that we have as Christians. Jesus, of course, made this point very clearly on a number of occasions. So on one occasion, he's uh, teaching, and someone says, Teacher! What is the most important thing that I could possibly do? And Jesus says, right, two things, okay? Love God, number one. And closely followed behind is love your neighbor, okay? Now, I would imagine this sort of divide was then in this guy's head because someone asked a question straight away. Yeah, but who's my neighbor? What I mean is, by neighbor, that sounds close. That's one of us, isn't it? We love those us. Jesus' whole point of what followed, which many of us would know very well, one of Jesus' most famous stories, the parable of the Good Samaritan, was exactly the opposite. No, it was them. We're loving them over there. Remember the story? Got this Jewish guy, he's been beaten up on this road, left for dead at the side of the road. Number of people who are in his gang, Jewish people, religious leaders, go by him, they've got other things to do. A guy comes along, looks after him, he fixes him up. That guy's a Samaritan, okay? 
to where the cultural information must come in, which is not too technical. I imagine most of us probably did this at school, probably. Samaritans and Israelites don't really get on. That's probably an understatement, actually, that they were enemies culturally. What's the point of the parable? The point was, Jesus saying, look, love your neighbor. We have a, you have a responsibility to show kindness to all people, especially those who we don't naturally show kindness to. We're called to respond in kindness, not just to our own or to people like us or to people we approve of, but to people who are the other. That child in your class who doesn't speak English, that mum at the school gates who swears loudly at her children, you try to, don't want to be associated with that person, the gay guy in your office, the outspoken neighbour with, how I put this, slightly right-wing views, you know any people like that? Well, I don't want to be associated with that. I don't believe that. No, no, those are the people we're called to serve and to help in need. You know what? It's natural for us to be kind to our gang. Elijah models a kindness that is towards those who are different to us. And I'll tell you what, that is a massive challenge to us. He also models a kindness that doesn't neatly fit into his priorities. I think this is equally challenging. Remember, we've got to remember the context again of the story of Elijah. Remember this guy and what, what a massive job he had. Elijah was chosen by God for an incredibly significant role that wasn't just for individuals. It was going to affect nations. I mean, this guy has a significance in history, in the whole of history, and in redemption history, in salvation history, in the history of the Bible. He's a pretty key player. He was chosen to almost single-handedly turn God's people back to their God at one of their most desperate hours that they had. Now, I don't know if you, any of you would carry a responsibility like that. I don't, I don't know. But if you, I know a number of us would carry quite a lot of responsibility, and some of us would know people like that. And when someone carries a role of that significance, a certain amount of focus is usually required. Okay, And by focus, what's usually meant is that Focus means not really worrying about distractions or interruptions. I'm doing this. No, I'm not doing that. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. Elijah, if anyone could have been uh, justified in being focused, it was Elijah. Because he had a massive job on his hands. He had the stress. Think of the weight he was carrying knowing what he had to do. But the thing is, the death of the widow's son was in many ways just that. It was a distraction. It was an interruption had absolutely no bearing at all on whether Israel would turn back to God or not. It was just one of those unfortunate things. Think about ourselves today in our lives. I think many of us might not think, well, I'm not on a mission like that, am I? But we would have priorities that we have that we would use to order our decisions, wouldn't we? All of us would be like this. For some, possibly, it could be your family. I'd imagine especially if you've got small children, that would take up a lot of your attention. That would help you, your priority of your kids would help you decide what you invest time in and what you don't. I'm on my kids, my kids, and no, I can't do that because of my kids. I can't do that because of my kids. Okay? Could be something else. Could be your exams if you're a student. Could be your career. Could be another ambition uh, that you have. You could call it a calling, you could call it whatever, but it's that thing. And no, I'm not doing that, I'm not doing that, I'm doing that. Okay, we all have things like that, and I want to be absolutely clear: that is a good thing in the right place. Okay, you could have a calling that was not your calling is bad, but generally that's a good thing. We 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 have to operate like that in many ways, and you know what? As a church, uh, we do exactly the same, don't we? 
tonight. Uh, we're having our uh, forward, terminally forward meeting, I, I presume in this very room, I, I would have thought. And uh, any of you on social media will know that uh, we, we think it's so important that there. Jonathan's recorded a picture of his head telling you, please be there, okay? And we, it is, I, I'd say the same thing. His whole body was involved somewhere, but his head is the bit you see, okay? Um, and I'd repeat that, it's going to be great, but what we're going to do there is we're going to talk about the things God's been doing and the things we've got planned in line with our vision. That's how we call it, our vision or our mission, to make Jesus the most talked about person in our city, to do good for our city, to impact the nations. We are on a mission as a church, because actually as individual Christians, we are on a mission. The banner over it all, Jesus' words ringing in our ears, go and make disciples of all nations. As Christians, by definition, we are on a mission. And that's a good thing. I thank God for that. But we've got to think about these priorities and even our mission as a Christians, as a church. And we've got to see, yes, those things are really helpful. Really helpful, really, really godly. But we've got to be careful. Because if we're not careful, those things, even the best of them, can lead us to become quite calculated, actually. No, it doesn't fit my mission. I'm ignoring that. I'm not even going to think about those things. And if we're not careful, we can close our eyes to the need around us, even when that's not our intention, when our priorities are to meet need. Now, Elijah would have been, if anyone was justified in acting like that, it would have been Elijah. It would have made a whole lot of sense for Elijah to keep this relationship strictly functional at arm's, an arm's length. We read this like Elijah knew. The minute he took that boy, we knew Elijah knows what's happening here. He's just going to raise him for the dead. It's going to be easy. What you remember is in the whole of history from Elijah's perspective, there had never been a resurrection before this time. Okay? This is the first resurrection in the whole Bible. Okay? So Elijah, you think, well, he can do anything, can't he? This is unprecedented. What, when he takes that boy, what does he expect to happen? He's going to get tied up. He's going to get caught up in a, in a pastoral situation that's going to involve a lot of his time. No, but he's on a mission. Surely it would have made sense to say, you know what? Let's keep each other a bit at arm's length. You provide my lodgings and food. I'll make sure the jars never run out. I'm sorry for your loss, but let's not get involved in each other's private lives. I've got, I've got some things to do. I've got bigger fish to fry than this. But listen, God calls us to kindness that doesn't always fit neatly into our priorities. Strangely, even with our church priorities. I'm going to be honest with you about this. I found this challenging message uh, to prepare, really. But for me, in these areas, and for Gemma, my wife, uh, we, we find this difficult in that one of our main priorities would be, our, as I mentioned before, our kids, our family. We have three kids, two, five, and seven years old. And obviously, <laughs> you'll be glad to hear this, a certain amount of focus is needed on, on our kids. That's important. That's the stewardship God's given us. It affects how we help other people. When we first had a child, we had to, the first thing, we had to stop having lodgers. Which someone at this site, I don't know if he's here, uh, would, have been, would have been axed from. I don't think he'd be so happy to be living with us now, because he has a couple of kids as well. He's, Tom's not here, is he? No, I can say that. That's good. Uh, but that was one thing. We couldn't do that anymore. We, we decided as well to cordon off certain days just for the family. We won't see any other people on these days. It would be wrong for me to abandon my family that God's entrusted me with and Spend a couple of weeks working in a soup kitchen. That'd be wrong for me. That's not, God's given me this thing. I know that. God's given Gemma this, this family. But we talk about this a lot. We, we've got to recognize, and we're talking about how to get the balance here, that we've got to keep our eyes open to need that doesn't fit neatly into our family schedule. 
We're trying to find ways to organize our family so it doesn't become totally insular and self-serving. I'm just aware of a, a risk that says, yeah, our family, obviously we're protecting the family because our family will help. It will be a help. If we're not careful, we can just make a family that looks in on itself all the time. That's a danger for us. I, 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 I be, I, I'd love to say, and this is how to solve the problem. I don't, I don't have that. We're working on that. I know also, even in church stuff as well, I, I can see in my life a keenness to do the mission Jesus has given us. There's been times when I've missed this. I've, I've got this wrong. Kind of thinking, shall I help that person? And in the back of my mind, if I'm being honest, there's been occasions I thought, they're unlikely ever to become a Christian, aren't they? Nah, I'm off here. I'm never going to see him again. It just doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. Oh, I'm going to go do this. I need to be on time for that meeting. I can't do that now. So I make excuses. So I just drive by. Don't get involved. Now again, this isn't black and white. This is incredibly tricky and it requires great wisdom. But I think we need to allow God to challenge us on this. We are called to be a people of compassion. We are called to be a people of kindness, even when such kindness doesn't necessarily serve our wider purpose. However good that purpose is. That's a challenge. It's a massive challenge. In short, if we were to summarize all this, I I guess the type of compassion that the Bible urges us to show is is a costly compassion. It's a kindness that comes with sacrifice. And this is where the kindness that the Bible speaks of and the kindness that the world speaks of are a gulf apart. They are completely different things. Kindness costs nothing. Have you ever said that before? Kindness costs nothing. That's what the world says. So it's easy. It's just natural, isn't it? Now that's not kindness. It's not what the Bible says. Now kindness comes at a massive personal cost to us. Think again back to that famous story, that one you've known since you were probably five or six many, the Good Samaritan. Let's go back to that story. Let's think about what it says. Let's pick it up. In, uh, this is Luke 10, verse 33. A Jewish guy's lying there for dead. The other guy's walked by. The Samaritan, his enemy, comes. This is what technically does. Just let this hit you again like you've never seen this. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. Yeah, the world can do that. That's fine. Yeah, we take pity. We see that. We have pity. Facebook status. Hashtag. We can do that. That's fine. Is that where it stops in the Bible? No, no, it doesn't at all. Look at 34. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. There's a sacrifice there, and it's a, it goes through that saying, but that's time. This guy rerouted his entire day for this. For a stranger who he just didn't know, just lying by the road. God could have been a drunk. God could have got in a fight because he was just, that's the kind of person he was. No, he spent his whole day. He had a, this guy had other things on. We often think, we're, but we're busy. We're really busy. No, everyone's busy. No, there's a cost of time here. Look on verse 35. Next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Two denarii was two days' wages, kind of about a couple of hundred quid, I'd imagine. He doesn't stop there, though. He promises to pay extra expenses, too. This is a kindness that stretches this guy. This is a kindness that comes at a cost. I must admit, I end up looking at this passage and going, have I read this story before? Because that's a massive challenge. That's not a, a nursery rhyme. 
It's not something you find in your assembly. It's very easy. Oh, yeah, we all know that. I'll tell you something that genuinely worries me about stories like this in the Bible. What worries me is that this isn't just a nice, profound, and memorable fable, but that when Jesus says at the end of this parable, go and do likewise, he actually means what he was saying. He's not speaking in riddles. He's saying, this is how I want you to be. To actually put ourselves out significantly for people we don't even know. For people who aren't in our social groups. When it doesn't serve our ends at all. I think that worries me because I can see that I'm the product of a culture. I'm not shifting blame here. I'm just trying to look around and see what it is about the difference here. But I'm the product of a culture that tells me that that sort of thing is impossible. And that culture affects all of us. Because, let's face it, we live at a time, as I've mentioned, when this kind of kindness is not even on the agenda. So then the world is not on the, even on this, in the same book as this, let alone the same page. Our focus for so long in our culture has been on ourselves. I worry that we have lost the ability to act like this at all. From the time that most of us would have been at school, every single day, you'll have been told about your rights. It's your rights. It's your rights. This is your rights. Stand up for your rights. That has an effect on us. Our very concept of morality and what's right and wrong has shifted to a point now where the, the reference point for doing good is no longer other people. It's me. Don't know if you thought that. You'd have thought doing right, that would be for others, isn't it? Even 30 years ago, when people talk about right and wrong, it's like, yeah, doing right is helping others, obviously. That's not the case now. The reference point for doing right is somewhere else. What's doing right? Be true to yourself. The good thing to do, be true to yourself. Where's the reference point? It's not over there anymore. We're all being forced to look in. It's all about me. And that's what the advertisers tell us. It's the slogan. You rule. Have it your way. You're worth it. And then with the busyness of life as well that we're put into, can you see how the machine works? We would be very foolish to think that we could just rise above that and say, oh yeah, but that's them. No, we're part of that. I've been struck recently by this in uh, the elections that we've had or are having and the tone of the discussion in those elections. I think often we can look to other countries and their elections and see this quite simply, not naming any names. Um, but it's when we look at our own country, I think we need to be quite aware of this. Remember, back to the general election, a year or two back, I can't remember. But I remember being kind of troubled by the tone of all the rhetoric. How were they selling their candidates to me? Well, it was all about me. How can we help you? You will be richer if you vote Labour. You will be, uh, your life will be easier if you vote Conservative. There was no mention at all, at least right up front, of how this help generally people. How is this going to help those on the fringes? How is people apart from you in society? You know, it's, it's about me. In the, in the Brexit vote, I might well have missed something here, but every single argument I've seen has been revolved around how staying or leaving will help us as a nation. I think that's odd. I've not heard anybody put the case to me either way, on either side, I'm not taking sides here, to say, actually, we could help some others out there. Our decision could help them. I think there'd be a case for both of those sides in how we can help the others. But that case isn't given. No, it's about us. It's about the people who live in our culture. It's like the years of me, me, me have had such a collective f- effect on us 
that is now presumed that we are no longer capable of being motivated by anything except for self-interest. That's why I read into that. It's that none of us really factor the needs of others into our decisions at all. That's what the spin doctors seem to have concluded. It's what the advertisers seem to think. But you know what, guys? We are called to something different. We are called to something very, very different. We are called to keep our eyes open for the needs around us and respond in costly kindness to that need, even when it involves people who are very different to us and when it doesn't serve our purposes. And you might think, well, if it doesn't serve our purposes, why would we do that? There's a simple answer to that. The reason is this, because it reveals the heart of God more than any other thing I think that we could do. Responding in compassion and kindness to need isn't just one of those things that we're told we should do. Okay, Do this because it's the right thing. It's not even some people in the Bible, some real good heroes have done this so we follow their example, people like Elijah's. No, no, we act this out as we emulate our Father in heaven. That's how we do it. God modelled this attitude perfectly. He looked down from heaven and he saw us. And he saw a group of people who were other, who were different, who were removed. Through our own rebellion, we had become enemies of God. We had become much further than the Samaritans and Jews ever became. We were enemies. And you know what? Helping us didn't fit in with discharging of his divine duties either. It didn't fit neatly in with those priorities. God is the judge of the whole universe. His job is to uphold justice, one of his jobs, in the whole universe. Psalmist says, righteousness and justice are the foundations of your throne. Look, God's righteousness and justice could have very easily been satisfied by saying, I am going to leave you lot in the mess you're in. You caused it after all. At the very least, probably is justice better served by him coming in and judging us for the whole lot. So what did he do? Well, he saw our need. His heart went out to us and he came to help. And I'll tell you what, how did he stretch? He stretched from heaven down to earth. Stretched from heaven to the cross itself. Well, that's a stretch. That's a cost. Kindness costs nothing. Really? Look at the cross. This is biblical kindness. This is a different word. It's a colossal sacrifice. As children of the Father, we're called to respond in compassion to the needs of others as those who've been shown the ultimate compassion. Now, we're coming to an end now. And I understand that's a, that hits you. So I hope it does anyway. That's, it hits me. And as we finish, I just want to drill this down slightly for us and make this very, very practical because otherwise, if I started out, I wouldn't be surprised unless you thought, guilt. Ah, what can I do with that? And that's not what God wants for us. Two things as we drill it down very quickly. What should we do? How do we deal with this How, without just being a weight that crushes us? First thing is this. What does this boil down to, really? It boils down to keeping our eyes open and being prepared. That's what I think it boils down to. We cannot, just to be clear, if you're doing this now, take on the emotional burden of all the need in the whole world. Can I just lift that off? You know, that's, that's fine. You can't do it. It's impossible. It will destroy you, okay? It will cripple us. It will cause to be no help to anyone. 
And that's not what Elijah did. That's not what the Good Samaritan did. These guys didn't have to go out of their way, like geographically, to show kindness. The Good Samaritan was not roaming the streets of Jericho looking for somebody, I must help need. No, he was just doing his thing and need came up before him. Exactly the same with Elijah. That could be. For some of you guys, that God's put things on your heart and you feel compassion for people who, are, who you don't normally come across. People who you'd have to make a significant move to go and help them at all. That's possible. If that's the case, you need to go with what God's challenging you on. But for most of us, all God's asking us is this. He's saying, open your eyes to the need that you come across every day and see if you can respond in compassion to that need. See if you can respond in kindness to that need, whoever it is. Keep your eyes open, be prepared. I think that's what God's asking us to do. Secondly, and finally, God wants us to respond to this with faith and not just with effort. Okay? So that again, he wants us to respond with faith and not just with effort. I think with any practical message or the practical teaching we see in the Bible, there's a temptation to feel challenged and convicted and then to think, right, it's on me now. I'm off. I'm going to go and do my best to do better. I'll just do better this time. Okay? So that's not going to work. It's the whole message of Christianity. That doesn't work. We cannot pull ourselves up by our bootstraps in that sort of way. Now, our primary response with anything that challenges us in our, in our lives is not to fall back on our inner resources, but to fall back onto God in faith that when he asks us to do something, he provides the resources to help us to do that thing. Now, when I think about the example of kindness we're asked to follow as Christians... As I said, I think I've communicated this, I find it reasonably daunting. Then when I throw into the pot my own track record of reasonably half-hearted efforts in that area, and also the cultural malaise that's all around us, it's not just daunting, it looks impossible. You think, how could anybody do that? But actually, Christian faith usually takes root in exactly that environment. How do you know that? Christian faith usually takes root in the impossible how it is there's no point just closing our eyes and things say, oh, i'm sure this will work out you know abraham the father of faith told he's gonna have a kid what did he do think ah oh, you know sarah's looking a bit perky after all doesn't quite look a hundred does she no he didn't think that at all he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead that sarah's womb was also dead he realized how bad it was we've got to realize that there's factors on us dragging us away from doing what god wants in this area we'll be real yeah, what does Abraham do? Yeah, he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. And for us, it's exactly the same. We throw ourselves onto the grace of God. As we did on the day when we got saved, we do and go, God, you ask this for me. I can't do it. Help me. Give me your spirit. Change my heart. If you're not a Christian here today, I would imagine, my guess would be, that you would value kindness and compassion. I'd also imagine that you'd seek to emulate that. I'm sure you are doing that in your life in different ways. I hope this message inspires you to live that out more and more. But you know what? I'd urge you that if you want to live this way, in the way the Bible describes, you are going to need all the help that you can possibly get. And the promise of Jesus is not just that he came to forgive the sins of yesterday, but he comes to give us power for today and tomorrow to live out loving lives to the people around us. I encourage you to put your trust in him, to start following him. Let him change you. 
If you're a Christian, I urge you to keep close to Jesus, to come to him, to admit your weakness, maybe to repent of some things if you need to, of your hardness of heart. I've had to do that. But to trust him to keep changing you in this area. He promises in his word to do it. Trust him and then go out with faith with your eyes open, looking for need and responding in compassion. God has an answer to the suffering around us. And a significant part of that answer is his church, his people. We're called to think these things through, but more than that, we're called to action. To respond in compassion to the need around us. I encourage us, let's take up this calling in faith so the world can see God's reality, not just in a consistent worldview, but in extraordinary lives of love.